Hello. Hey, John. Oh, hey there, Dan. How are you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Uh, I'm uh, I'm doing just uh, just spiffy. Uh, Hattie read to me your update in uh, from Facebook oh. about everything that's been going on with you. That's on Gary's van. Yeah, the, uh, the special. Hopefully, what will always remain a special private place where I can share my written feelings. Right. It's like an inv- an invite only group or uh, something like that. Yeah, I don't. I think. I, don't, I think, think so. I think you have to. I think you have to get in there somehow. Yeah. I don't. I don't expect that it's full of news media. In other words. Right. Right. I don't really. I have a Facebook account, but I, it's like a yearly event for me to log in and look around and then, and then eat, you know, delete all the cookies and uh, throw away the computer and all that stuff. So I don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't really, <laughs> you know, or whatever, whatever people do, you know, you have to burn, burn the computer or something. So, yeah. uh, so I didn't, but she, she's on there and she read it to me and it, um, very, uh, I would suggest people are interested in such things. However, one gets into Gary's van, get in there and, and read about John. Hmm. I know you were you were expressing some suspicion or at least some some doubt about Gary's van. You felt like it was it it uh, it wasn't a roadwork property, but I think people that are on Gary's van are very roadwork oriented. Well, I mean, I I'll have to take your word for that. Uh, you know, to me, it seemed like something that came out of another another uh, show. And then, well, the the na- I think I think I talked. I think by the time we started doing road work, well, Gary was still around, wasn't he? Gary know. was the guy that lived in, in Jamaica's front yard in his van. Remember Gary? I remember the story, but I don't know when the time frame was for it. Well, Gary was there for years. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, I mean, that's to me, you know, I feel like what I don't want to do is mm-hmm. I don't want to like muscle in on... uh you know, on territory that belongs to another show. And at oh. the same time, at the same time, I don't want to be like an also ran right in that. Other you're, you're, you are, you are concerned that road work is some kind of adjunct to well, Roderick on the line. Well, I would not, I, I don't consider our content to be supplemental to, no. to that show in any way. And I don't um, think any of our listeners do either. Well, I, 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 who knows? I mean, who knows? Who can get inside the heads of those people? Well, for example, I went to see Nirvana, and opening for Nirvana was the Breeders. There, yeah, they were a good band, the Breeders. And I had uh, I had only ever heard Cannonball, but it wasn't really getting much radio play outside of like little college radio stations, you know. It's an incredible song <laughs> based on song. absolutely nothing. There's <laughs> zero musicianship happening, and it's the best. Yeah, it's yeah. just make make some noise and make it fun. Boom, 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 boom. It's like so fun. And uh, and so I think I had heard that song maybe once. And this was at the time period where I wasn't going to a concert like to have fun at the concert. I was going like, I'm here to see this band and the band that I'm here to see is called Nirvana and that's it. Mm-hmm. I don't want this act opening up for, I had no idea that they were going to become 
I mean, relatively a big, a big thing with all the radio play and everything that they got. Uh, so, what but happened? I, well, well, what I'm saying is I don't want, th- you know, to, for this show to be perceived in that way as just some kind of opening band that like people grudgingly have to listen to for, you know, and then that, somehow having it in Gary's van, which seemed like it was a place for one thing now. Maybe it's a place for something else. I don't know. I didn't. I don't know. Is it for fans well, of John's work? In that case, I'm I'm all for it. But if it was like connected to the other show, then I feel like I don't know. My perception is that of all the many podcasts you and I both do, Roadwork is the least likely to be a gateway to us. Right? Roadwork is a place where people who know us want more of us and then once they discovered it realized that there was something to your and my conversations that was not happening other places certainly that's how i feel about it there's so it, it, you're kind there, of saying that that roadwork is like beluga caviar yeah roadwork is no, not for the faint of heart no one starts it, with beluga caviar i would i would be very surprised to hear from any of our listeners, I discovered road work first and then I branched out and started listening to back to work and all the other works. Right. Right. No, I think it's, I think this is the collection of, um, truly discerning, uh, like edge cases. Mm-hmm. Because I think that, I think road work is a more challenging listen in a way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a very, you know, the, a lot of what, a lot of what justifies what we do, I think is that it, um, is the, I don't know the, the, the possibility, the, the pedagogy, the, 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 the idea that we really are talking about something and it really is a talk. Right. And not a, uh, we're not riffing you and I, mm. those few instances where you try to riff, I stop you immediately. Damn it, Dan. <laughs> Don't you dare try to riff <laughs> or have any memes of any kind. Like if you think about it, Dan, you and I have no catchphrases. That's right. Now, the other shows that I do, all three of them have catchphrases. Now, I don't think that's bad. The catchphrases are in keeping with their with those those shows' natures. Mm-hmm. But we don't have any. Never occurred to us to. None of the listeners to this program ever throw catchphrases back at us on the internet. Mm-hmm. No do you one think has that ever this is detrimental to the fate of the show. No. No, no, no. It's but it exemplifies something about road work. Um, it's one of the reasons that making a T-shirt has been difficult. Whereas with uh, Roderick on the line, there are a lot of catchphrases. Catchphrases I'm proud of. Catchphrases that say that say things. Catchphrases that are that are shorthand for a mentality or a way of thinking, way of seeing. But you and I don't have any. Because we're talking in a different way. And I think it's, if it weren't for road work, 
there would be a, a major component of what I'm hoping to do on the internet and in the world that would be missing. And Gary's van, I think, was started by fans in response to something I said to you, which was, I wish there was a place, like multiple times, uh, listeners have tried to get something going on the internet, you know, yeah, put together a, a, a web page where they're trying to consolidate all the different topics and thoughts and, and, um, and it's never, it's never been some central location where everybody agreed that this was what was going to happen. And so see somebody over here is doing some transcriptions and someone over here is doing a catalog and someone over here wants to, but I think what it all is, is an expression of people trying to take the, I don't know, the tempo of the conversation, the nature of it, the, the overall kind of attempt that's being made mm. and expand upon it and make it, you know, I, it, I think that the listeners to these shows don't necessarily want a community mm. in the sense that they, I don't get the feeling that a lot of them want to ever meet each other or even us. You know, like, I don't think they want a community in that sense of like, if we all got together and had a barbecue, it'd be so fun. I think there's a general understanding that it would not be fun. <laughs> but, <laughs> you don't think it would be? I mean, fun. You sure. Because because I would be there or well, maybe once a year, it'd be fun. Yeah. <clears throat> Every time somebody threw a Frisbee, there'd be five people analyzing it. But, but I do think that there's a, that there's a desire to have a um, a place where you could prolong the conversation or or ask a follow up question or something, you know, and um, and so Gary's van was has been I think the most successful attempt at this because it's on Facebook, which everybody hates, but it is a central place that you know that at least and I think probably of the listeners to this program, like a larger a larger percentage of roadwork listeners probably have canceled their Facebook page than your mm -hmm. average bear. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure there are a lot of people that are like, I just don't, I don't have Facebook, but of the people that do, they've, they've attempted to get a thing going over there. And I think for the, for a long time, I just sort of lurked and I felt like it wasn't my business, you know, like, Oh, well they're doing something that's, you know, I was raised in the, in the era of indie showbiz where you weren't supposed to go look what your fans were doing. You weren't supposed to listen to what they were saying mm -hmm. because it was <clears throat> unseemly. And also it was, it wasn't your business. You're the artist, you're the creator or whatever, and you should remain in your temple. But I, I was having a conversation and I wrote this on the, on the Gary's van page because I was, I was talking to some college professors that I know who were kind of, just we we're just talking about where colleges are, mm -hmm. and I'd have this conversation maybe a month ago with a different guy, also a, a a college professor, and the consensus just seemed to be that the universities just aren't what they they aren't what they were, and they aren't what we what we hoped they'd be. You know, they've. It, 
university education has morphed into something. And I've been talking about this for a long time. I just don't feel like <clears throat> not only are they not working, but there's not a place that's doing what they should be doing, which is a place where people are thinking critically and not, not descending into screaming at each other about ideas that are hard and mm -hmm. walking away from conversations without a clear picture and not looking for expertise necessarily, not looking to become an expert on a topic, which I think a lot of people mistake a university as a, as a place to go become an expert. And I honestly, I think that that is also a trade school expertise in something is, is I would define as a trade more than a, a discipline hmm. because if, if, I mean, the more you know about the liberal arts, the less you know right. about anything that's right. by definition, the, the smartest people I know are the ones that are just like, I got no answers and we're living in a culture now where that's just not allowed or it's not even, it's not even a conception that people have that to be smart is to have n fewer answers, not more. But that's not to say to be smart is not to advance a lot of possibilities and to, to, to talk broadly about it. And even as I do to talk as though you're speaking knowledgeably anyway. So I went on Gary's van and I was like, look, I've been ignoring, I'm not ignoring, I've been watching, but I haven't been engaging because it's, it's always seemed unseemly, but I feel like I'm doing us. I'm doing the people who have made the effort to come to this place a disservice by not trying to also be part of their conversation because the, the nature of the internet is that it very quickly turns into a kind of fan page just by virtue of people needing something to talk about. Mm -hmm. And um, it's hard to get an, a conversation going because nobody there really, I mean, they haven't been on that page with one another for five years. They don't know each other. And generally what happens is, you know, they're, top five kind of personalities that step forward and th this becomes the grouchy guy and that becomes the <laughs> peacemaker and you know, right. And that also doesn't seem like in the nature of people that listen to the show. And one guy did go on and kind of, you know, he kind of like threw us like a, uh, a ninja smoke grenade and then disappeared but he said, I, you know, <clears throat> I thought that this, we were going to come over here and, and talk with each other. And it seems like we're just doing fan stuff. And I'm not sure. I don't understand why that's not in the spirit of, of the show. Cause it's not a place you trade memes road work. And I think the people on the thing were like, well, if you've got something to say, go for it. Like put out, a, put out a question or something. Right. You know? And then, you know, he, he like ninja smoked. I don't, I don't remember. I didn't follow it exactly. But so the last few, I'd say just for the last 10 days or so, I've been paying a little bit more attention to what's happening on Gary's van of all the crazy things, because it does feel like to, to even want to be there, you would have to be, you'd have to find value in road work, especially. Uh, and I don't even know if I've mentioned Gary's van on any other program, but this one, I may have referred to it with Merlin 
a time or two. But I think of it as primarily a place where for the uh, diehard is the wrong word too. I, I really feel like it's a kind of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a place for the curious, okay. which is, I guess, all I want in life, right? All I want is curious people. Um, who aren't quick to, who aren't quick to jump and they aren't quick to recoil. <laughs> and I think that's what we do here. Yeah. Okay. I you like know, that. You know, I think that you are a very curious person. Yeah. I, I, I could go along with that. You are I mean, too. I, <laughs> I think I think curiosity is the only thing I have going. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is the if I were not curious, n- I would not none of the things that that uh, define me would be true. Mm. You know, it's curiosity that that drives me out the door in the morning. It's why I ask questions of people, it's why I read, you know, it's not I'm not doing anything other than satisfying my curiosity. Sure. Cause I don't have a, there's no, I'm not working toward any expertise. Clearly I'm not, I did not pursue an academic career. I didn't pursue any kind of technical, um, expertise. Like it, it doesn't benefit me directly in any way, but the indirect benefits have, uh, you know, are basically the narrative of my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I don't know if that's a thing you can, it's the great question. Can you give, can you impart create, uh, I'm sorry, not creativity. Can you impart curiosity to someone that isn't naturally curious? Yeah, I don't think so. There's something I've wondered about a lot. Like most of what I'm doing during the day is writing, writing code, developing software. And that's what I've done most of my life since I was a child, really. As far as, you know, for a long time, it was something I did as a hobby. And then I realized I could make money doing it. But the thing that, that makes for a good developer, and I think this is true for many, many, many other things, is like what you're talking about is curiosity. It's the fact that people will be inspired. If they're naturally curious, they'll be inspired to want to know how something works and why it works that way. And I really do think that there are two kinds of people. There are people who wonder how how and why about everything and people who are content to not wonder and neither is good or bad. I think we need both kinds of people, but like there is nothing. I don't want to say nothing. There's very little in the world around me where either I know how it works or I don't know how it works, but I want to know. And that pretty much covers everything. Hmm. Like I know in, in great detail how this microphone works and I know how the computer that I'm using works in, in very, very great detail and behind the scenes, how it works. And that comes from just curiosity. I, like I remember being very young and taking things apart. I always took things apart, whether it was tape recorders or flashlights or toys or whatever. And I always, always wanted to know 
how these things were put together. And it's not like I really came away with any useful knowledge from it. You know, half of it was just like, well, what's that thing? Why does that do this thing? You know, and for a long time, as cars got more modern, I started to get angry because you couldn't work on your own car as easily anymore or at all. And I would, that's what kind of pushed me into getting interested in like, uh, what do we used to call them? Muscle cars and that type of thing back in, in high school and really wanting to learn how to like fix cars and working at a, um, you know, a, a, a shop fixing cars because I wanted to understand them. I wanted to know how did they work? Why, you know, what, well, how does this car work? How is this one different? You know, that was why I bought an RX-7 because it had a Wankel engine and I was fascinated by the way the Wankel engine worked, even though it leaked oil. <laughs> but like, I, love, I love that you just dropped a diss on the Wankel engine well, as, it leaked you're, oil. as you're walking by. I had to keep a, a quart of oil in the backseat of the car because I would get did, the little did, oil light would come on. Did you have a Mazda? No, oh, a Mazda RX-7. Oh yeah. Oh that's, oh, that's right. That was kind of your signature car for a while. I'm sorry. That go, go was on. my car for like the early nineties after my, uh, civic was stolen. Uh, that was the car that I bought with the insurance money. I bought it from a guy who was a pilot who came to my off campus apartment dorm thing. And, um, I handed him cash and he, he left the car. Hmm. You know, but I, I loved learning about that kind of stuff. It was very fascinating to me. And I've, and that's kind of how I approach everything, you know, like I, but I'm not, I'm not content to just kind of like know how something works. I want to know what went into it and why it works that way. And, and why, why we wound up with the thing that we have as opposed to some other thing. That's very interesting to me, but I don't think that you can teach that. You can't, you can't make someone be curious or make them feel curiosity if it's not, if it's not there. And I know lots of people, the way the car works is you put the key in and you turn it. You might have to have your foot on the brake and, and press the button if it's that kind of car. Uh, and when you give it gas, the, the car goes faster and when you push the brake, the car goes slower. And if it makes a noise or shutters or explodes, then you take it and someone fixes it. And like, that's, that's their knowledge of how a car works. And, and this isn't a gender thing. I know plenty of, of dudes who that's how much they know about their car. I remember a, a very good friend of mine, they're in the process of selling their house. And he's like, oh, well, you know, where people aren't liking it because the state of the bathroom. I'm like, well, what's going on in the bathroom? He said, oh, well, like all the, like the caulk is all disgusting around the, you know, the, the tub and other, and I said, but you can just fix that. That's like a, you know, like, like a, an hour fix. No, that. sell your house, move. Immediately. Well, he was moving, but he wanted to make the house look a little bit better to help sell it. Right. So, oh. and I'm like, well, you just strip off the old caulk and you put new cock down and he's like, why well, I, I, I don't know how to do it. I, I can't do anything like that. And I'm like, dude, that's like, that's the easiest thing to do in your house. But there's so many people who like, well, that's like you call someone to do that. And I don't know why, I don't know why I got the, the curiosity bug. I mean, my granddad was a scientist. Maybe I got it from him cause he, he raised, helped raise me. But I feel like I was curious 
you know, before that, I was always that annoying kid that said, why, why, why? I don't know. Can you teach it? Mm. I don't think you can. Mm. Mm. Are you content to just, Mm. someone puts something down and you're like, well, it just works. It does the thing. I push the button. It does it. Or do you want to know? Like, do you, I'm, I'm still tempted to take everything apart. Well, you like know, you we get, have you get a new blender. The first thing you want to do is not take it apart. Of course, of course you take it apart. When I was a kid in elementary school, I had, uh, I had, uh, I had my best friends, let's call them, um, were twins, Thomas and Peter Kluge. <laughs> and their dad and mom were immigrants from Germany and he was a doctor, and I think she may have been a doctor, but they lived in a very, very cool sort of mid-century house that at the time I didn't think was cool because I didn't think mid-century was cool until a year ago. <clears throat> didn't understand it. It just seemed like the kind of house that my parents had. But Thomas and Peter, their father was, I think, even a surgeon, and they were the kind of boys that you're describing yourself as where – their idea of how to interact with an electronic toy was to take it apart right, and then try to put it back together and often put it back together so that it did something that it didn't formerly do. Like circuit bending stuff. Yeah, well, or yeah, right. Or maybe made it so that it no longer could do the thing that it was meant <laughs> to do. But their room had all kinds of electrical, mechanical things you know i think they started with an erector set building a crane and then they realized that the <clears throat> you know the rock'em sock'em robot or whatever also had uh-huh. a little basically erector set inside mm-hmm. of it or whatever all those little robots and stuff that you could wind up and and uh if they if they figured out how to get them apart they could turn them into basically monsters and i did not share at all their interest in that kind of play um and their little monsters that they made little robots that they'd taken apart and turned into other things didn't intrigue me even it wasn't just that taking it apart to see what it what made it go um didn't intrigue me but that the machine itself didn't i mean the thing that they built i was just like oh hmm Mm -hmm. That seems like a thing that doesn't work very well. And and honestly, I wouldn't have bought the initial robot as a toy in the first place. Now we were we were very close friends and played together merrily. But in in that sense we had very different interests. But I think one of the key differences is that I would sit in their kitchen and talk to their mom. Now, they wouldn't sit in my kitchen and talk to my mom. Mm-hmm. But I have a pretty clear picture, considering that I put this picture together when I was seven and eight years old. Right. Of the Kluge parents' journey from Germany to America after the war. Now, they were reticent people 
they were extremely Germanic. And also there's a, there were tones in those conversations that suggested that Dr. Kluge played some part in the role in the war in, in some capacity that never, that never, uh, burbled to the surface in our conversations or, Mm -hmm. you know, or was, was like very definitely not in the conversation. And I don't know whether or not he was old enough. I don't remember whether he was old enough to have served in the war or whether that was just the environment where they were young, but they certainly were in Germany for the war in some way, shape or form. And I, and I know how they came to America. And I know this just because I, I didn't go in there saying like, oh, they were Germans. Like, the, let me ask some questions about what they did during the war, which is what I would do now. Uh, it just came about as a result of just asking questions sitting while she was making us uh, peanut butter sandwiches, you know, like, well, you guys are from Germany. Where's that? You know, just like little kid questions. So I don't want to take apart machines. I definitely want to take apart other people's experiences i just i want to take apart other people not because i think of them as machines mm-hmm. but because it seems like that's where all the all the necessary information for what i wanted to build it was inside other people and the only way to get it out was to ask them right and what i was trying to build i don't it wasn't a robot it wasn't a a, uh, a golem that I was going to sick on the world, sick upon the world. It was, I don't know what I, I texted a friend last night and said, are you and your husband different religions? And she just out of the blue, like you hadn't talked to them in a few years and, just I haven't talked to her in a while, but I saw some, you know, I, but there was something that she posted online that made the kind of finally sort of tipped me over into, I need to, I need to try and get to the bottom of this so that I understand what I, I understand, not just what I'm seeing, but like, this is, this is a key element in understanding this person, her family, their dynamic. And I think that she, it, she was initially like a little suspicious that it was a trap. The, the question you know, that, itself was some kind of a trap. Yeah. That, well, that anybody that would ask that question would immediately begin with a, um, with a, with a perspective, with a hot take mm. either that, either that I would be coming in thinking one religion was better than the other or that I was coming in as someone who thought all relation, all religion was stupid. And this was my opportunity to make a big speech about how the fact that they were different religions meant something, you know, like, or, or that, or that it was just that I was playing around in their private sandbox and what business of it was mine. But I wasn't any of those things. I just wanted to, I wasn't going to use this information against them. I wasn't going to, I didn't have a dog in the race. I just had, I just had some questions and I think 
most people would not, most people would think that that was crossing some kind of line to just ask a question like that of someone. And I'm, I'm friends with her, but not some, you know, we've never gone to a, we've definitely gone to a second location together. We've even gone to a third location together, but not a fourth. I don't know if we, is that like a big deal? Like the third or fourth? This is what I mean. Yeah. Because that requires that you get into a car with them. Hmm. Like to go to a second location, it's like, Hey, we're going to go to the thing. I'll meet you there. Even a third location. It's like, well, okay, we're all going to this third place. Just a few of us now, but like we're going to a fourth place. That basically means everybody in the car and we're going to go up the mountain. Very intimate. Yeah. So you're not going to, that's, that's, that's pretty. And the thing is I could have gone there. I, I mean, I feel like I could be closer to her than I am. And part of what keeps us at one remove is her husband and his, um, and something about him that's tonally different. And I realized that it was, it was possibly, uh, like a religious conflict. I see. It was, were they different religions? Well, initially she said yes, Mm. because she has recently had a kind of, or not recently, but over the last several years has had a conversion experience that was born out of a lot of suspicion about her, the religion that they shared. But she then later on in the conversation indicated that they had left the they left their old church together as a family and now attended a different church together as a family. So what it seemed like ultimately was that they were still going to church together, but then she was practicing a side religion. Was it like the difference between like Methodist Presbyterian and Lutheran, or was it like Lutheran versus Hinduism or something? Was it a big difference or was it a subtle change? I think more a change of, I mean, it, it, it was all within the, within the umbrella of Christianity. But if you are, if you are from a school of Christianity that is extremely patriarchal and that preaches that, um, a wife submits to her husband right. and that obedience is like the number one, uh, the number one way you please God, right. your husband is the God in the house. Uh, and then you contrast that with say like, um, you know, like uh, liberation theology of some activist Catholic priest in Guatemala, who's, who's standing in front of the government guns in order to, you know, to spread a kind of Marxist Catholicism among the mountain peoples. They're two radically different Christianities. And theologically, they don't really, I wouldn't imagine that they were uh, very happy bedfellows. Mm -hmm. So that I'm super curious about. Like if you are, it's one thing if you know if you're Jewish and your wife is Christian or whatever, and you guys decide that you're going to s- celebrate Hanukkah and Christmas because neither person is especially serious about their religion, 
And it's a different thing if your parents believe that non-believers are going to hell and they're really worried about your eternal soul because you have gone to the city and gotten a septa piercing. But you keep going home for Christmas and you've all decided that you're just not going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But it's a different thing to be raising two kids living in a house where both people are devout. Mm. And one of them believes that the wife should submit to the husband and the other one believes that uh, there should be a Marxist revolution in Central America. <laughs> yeah. And that Jesus wants both things. That. I mean, it's just like, you guys can't possibly have decided that we're just not going to talk about this. And you can't also be arguing the finer points of this every night. That would be exhausting. And what, so what kind of uh, treaty have you hammered out? Well, that's personal shit i think in in a lot of families yeah but I, but i could i absolutely could not not ask that wait a minute i could not yeah i could not not ask that question of them once it had a, once it had occurred to me and i don't think most people do recoil from being asked personal questions like that i mean there are there are i think a few people that, I mean, people that have something they, that either they really, really want to hide and are failing at hiding or are re- really, really don't want to think about. But most people, if you go right up to them and say, what's your religion? Mm-hmm. They may have not tried to describe it in a decade or ever. But do you think that there is not just a simple answer for that? Like for a lot of people, I think it's, it's a simple answer. <clears throat> yeah. But I think the way that I asked the question, it's clear that it's not like, what church do you go to? Hmm. But for me to come up to someone and ask that question, I would have had to have been prompted because I don't care what your fucking religion is. If you're right. just walking around. Right. But if you, if you performed some act, some public act or private act that I was aware of that had a, that, you know, that, that shed light or cast you in a, in, as a decision maker, you were acting according to a code of some kind that, that was, that was evident. I'd want to know what it was immediately. And I'd want to know how you had shaped it because nobody, it's very rare that I'm going to walk up to somebody and they're going to say, I am an orthodox something. Uh, It's always going to be, I come from an orthodox place and here's where I am now. You know, my friend Rick who teaches at Notre Dame, he is a conservative Catholic theologian and legal scholar but rick loves the blues and rick likes to ski and rick is you know rick likes to kind of be a dick and rick (laughs) is like a fully fledged person who has like very very compelling he's he's argumentative he's 
he has a great sense of humor. He's um, he's like really not a dork. You know, Rick is one of these people that's just not. Although he has nerdy interests, he is not a nerd. He is a he's the kind of guy that you would like to lead your little group somewhere. Like Rick, Rick will. I haven't. I have not hung out with Rick in in a in a way in which he might potentially lead a little group in twenty five years. But I would still happily follow Rick on a mission. You know. So so if I just read his writing, certainly if I just followed his Twitter account, I would develop an opinion about Rick. But mm-hmm. I think it's true of uh, I think it's true of everybody. All I mean, these assholes. I would be, ho- the I would be all hor- horrified if if. Anyone, and they probably do, if they actually read my Twitter and think that that's real. Like any, nothing, nothing that I say or do or put on Twitter, it should be taken too seriously. It's to me, and this is the thing, like every single day I wake up, I'm like, people are upset because of what our president said on Twitter today. I don't, (laughs) I can't speak to that, but I can say I don't take anything on Twitter too seriously. Like if you go to see an Adam Sandler movie, I'm not walking out of there thinking that like that is 100% who Adam Sandler is. Uh, That's simply what he thought at the time would be funny to put into a movie. And like, I'm not going to use that as like a, a, a barometer for the, you know, the, the Adam Sandler world that makes sense. I'm that's right. the whole thing. Like Twitter is just like, it's a place to like, yeah, you maybe talk to some people and you goof off and then someone gets angry and then they laugh about it and then something else happens. And it's just nothing. There's no, I'm still, and I mean, I was one of the very first people on Twitter. I was on Twitter when it was a text messaging service for your phone, you know, that you would text a four, four, Oh, four, four or whatever it was. And that's how you got, and you got alerts from your friends on your phone via text. That's what Twitter was. And my username was Dan. (laughs) And I had to change it because I kept getting at messages for every other Dan on the internet. And I changed it to just my name, but like Twitter's like, that's what it's always stayed to me. It's always like a fun, you know, you look at your daughter, John, you look at your daughter and what is she about seven or eight now? Eight. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, mine's eight also. But mm-hmm. when I look at her, I still see everything that she's, every stage of her life. I see her in the sonogram picture, the baby that was just born, the little girl running around the house, and now the like young lady who has entertains her friends at her birthday party with stories. Like I, I see all of that, you know, and everything in between. And and like you, the only way you can really get a complete picture of someone is to spend a whole lot of time with them. But there are people who are like looking at Twitter and thinking like, that's the way someone is like, God, like Twitter is, it represents the 1% of my personality, if that, and it's usually the, the percent that's, you know, not in the best mood. But like, I would never want someone to look at my Twitter and say, well, that's like, that's what I'm about. You know, that's like Twitter is like a, like a slice of life 
during when everyone's experiencing road rage. Like it's not representative of anything. But there are yeah, people just, who don't who don't know that. There are people who don't feel that way about it, and then they see something that someone who does feel that way about it, and and they take it very seriously, and they get upset, and then and it's it's just like uh, it's like an Adam Sandler film. You just jump in and you laugh for a minute, and then you get out of there and don't talk about it again. I just want to just <clears throat> uh, circle back to the point that you had uh, the Twitter handle at Dan. Yeah. And you were like, oh, this is too much trouble. I'm getting all these other yeah, calls horrible. from Dan's. Mm-hmm. Like you had a three letter Twitter handle. Yeah. That it was, and it was Dan. It mm-hmm. wasn't even like Borp. No. Or, or Borp. Bra ball. Right, just Dan. It was just Dan. Yeah. <clears throat> One of the only three letter names, really. Tom. Yeah, right. Joe. Yeah. That, um, I mean, I don't think Twitter names ever became a thing that were traded like URLs are traded. People have bought them. They have, they have bought them. I probably could have made some money if I had kept that. But like, what a, what a coup. I think about the fact that I have at John Roderick on whatever the platforms that I'm interested in being on. And it was all just because I don't know, somebody told me to go, go sign up for, go sign up for Instagram now and get your name. And I was like, okay, I guess, but you know, like when I signed up for Instagram, it was still possible to just be at John Roderick Mm -hmm. and all the other poor John Roderick's, who have to be John Roderick 57. But you were at Dan. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just, it's because I was very, 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 very early and it was available. Yeah. Well, we understand that. I mean, we all, all the listeners do, but I just, I just, wasn't, to, I just it, want to remark upon it. <laughs> be like at, at John. <clears throat> I mean, it would be the equivalent of at John. Sure. Yeah. Can you, can you imagine if I was at John? Wow. The only the place John. I'm at Dan Benjamin on every service. The only exception to that is GitHub where I was also very, very early and I'm Dan there and I get tons of, I love it. I get tons of invitations for people's secret repositories on there. And for a long time I would just ignore it. And then later on I would get the email that I'd been removed because basically I, I know you're an avid user of, of GitHub for your code repositories, John, but there I don't might, even know what GitHub is, but yes, okay. there might be people in the audience that don't. And so GitHub is a place where if you're, if you're a developer, but you could, you could use this for kind of any text file of any kind, you commit your, it's a source control system. So you, you, you write some code and then when you're going to change it, you commit those changes and then you change it and then you commit those changes, but it lets you share your code and you can roll back to previous versions, but it works. It's very, very useful for a lot of reasons that no one listening cares about. And but it's a very, very well-known service. It's pretty much like where all the code for everything is, is kept. And there are like, see, you know, so like, like if you, if you and I started a company and we had our software for it, we might commit the source code up and push it up to GitHub so that our software developers could get to it, contribute their code, update it. And if you hired someone new, you're going to give them access to your GitHub repository for your code. And it seems like I get all of the ones for anyone whose name starts with Dan, 
Because as you're adding your collaborator, you start typing Dan and someone comes up and then I guess click it. And I get these invitations for like super secret code. And I generally don't look at it, but like this is the equivalent of getting hundreds of at messages every day for someone that's not you. I don't know. It's uh, I'm not changing it, but it's way, it's way less bandwidth than it was taking up on Twitter and all the text messages. Right. Well, back to Gary's van and road work. Yes. Do you, what do you hope to get out of all this effort? Do you think that when you think about doing this show, are you thinking that we're, because I know there are people that listen who just, who just are kind of enjoy hearing people shoot the breeze. Mm -hmm. I know that there are probably more people than, than that are listening and trying to glean insider information about, about the clockwork universe. But do you have a sense that we are, that we are building something? And if so, what, like what, are what are these podcasts making like if we were doing a podcast about some murder mm-hmm. it would be just like murder television shows you, uh-huh. you put them on you listen to <laughs> uh, you listen to someone describe a murder or murders and mm-hmm. then you listen to the people that i mean there are few less eloquent storytellers than cops Hmm. like murder cops right if you sit a murder cop down at a desk and say tell us the story of the invest the murder and the investigation like they're not poets you know what i mean but people love it they love to hear uh guys on clip with clip on ties go like and then we realize we're going to have to look more deeply into where the corn syrup originally came from. And it's just like, but some, somehow people are, people are digging this kind of show because they, people love murder because people are murderers, Dan. (laughs) All people. I would go so far as to say, all people are murderers. My my little eight year old girl is a murderer. So. No, I'm afraid so. No, I'm afraid she is. I'm afraid so. No. Are you saying that given the right opportunity, people would all commit a murder, or are you saying that in the right circumstances, anyone could be forced to commit murder? I think that everything that we do. Everything that we have learned, every bit of agriculture and animal husbandry and beer making and architecture and patent leather shoes, all of it has been a studied effort on the part of human beings to distance ourselves from murder, which is our number one thing. Mm. And that desire to build all those things to distance ourselves from murder is also due to something in us that doesn't want to murder that, that wants to live without it. 
and that's the that's the push and pull inside us all. Mm. Every morning we wake up and go, <clears throat> got to brush my teeth and comb my hair and stumble downstairs and stumble in the kitchen and da 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 and um, grab your coat and grab our hats. Right. Yeah, da da da. And the whole time it's just like, don't murder, don't murder, please don't murder. <laughs> is that is that how you feel? No, because I'm successfully <laughs> domesticated, oh, Dan, like we you've, all are. You've created that distance between yourself yeah, and Yeah, no, the, I'm I'm fully invested in the like Um But there's a reason that we the reason that the most popular shows are are all voyeuristically about murder. Right. If you think about what you consume media wise and what are the most popular things? It's all murder. It is. The only, true. yeah, it's just like, well, I mean, but zombie you, murder or but, cop but, murder or criminal murder. But I think I, I, I wouldn't say I don't make the connection or draw the conclusion that the reason that people are interested in watching TV shows about murder is because we are all murderers. That's a logical fallacy. I think. Well, murder is repulsive, and if we were truly repelled by it, it would be very easy to watch television shows about animal husbandry and <laughs> yes. um, about. But, but we are we are often farming. drawn. We're often drawn to things that we fear. We're often drawn to things that we don't like. We're often drawn to things that we find repulsive in in a way. And I think a lot of people are have that morbid curiosity. I mean, the Faces of Death, Part One and Two and Twenty. You know, I mean, but are we? It, but it doesn't mean that that's things? because we like it or want to do it. Like, I are, are we drawn to things that we fear? How many television shows are there about being locked in a small box? I think there's a lot. There aren't any. No, there's there not are, a there single. Are a lot. There's Boxing Elena. Just off the top of my head, there's lots of movies a, where people get locked in small. You really want me to put on my thinking cap? I could name. I could name a dozen about people being trapped in a small space. Those are all in prelude to them being murdered, right? No, not all of them. Some people I mean, want to be in the box. I guess. I guess I could name people, off the top the of my head. Does. Yes, I could name all, including uh, including pulp fiction. I could probably name you 10 movies that either are about or involve people being locked in a small space. Go. Okay. Let's see. Boxing Elena, pulp fiction, um, can it kill Bill? Kill Bill is in there. Yeah, Kill Bill would be in there. What about? Um, I just had one. Three. I'll, I could do ten. I could do ten. You said ten. I'll get to ten. Um. Oh, uh, what about um, the Prestige? Great movie. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. No spoilers. Um. I mean, it might take the rest of the show. <laughs> but I'll get to 10. <laughs> well, what my point is, um, Oh, what was that movie where the, the lady, um, the lady is abducted. I think it's a based on a true story. She's abducted and actually has gives birth inside of a very small room that she's locked in. Oh, um, I mean, all the horror, everything in horror has to do with Locked. There's a movie I remember called something like Locked in a Box or something. 
Well, anyway, I'll, as I come up with them, I'll, I'll shout out the name of it while you're talking. Okay. All right. Good. Anyway, Wicker I do man. feel like, what was he, that? Wicker man. He gets locked in something. I never saw that. Well, I do think that, uh, within our, within the, the human, um, community, there are people that we hire to murder for us. There are people that we, um, people whose job it is to murder by any other name. Mm-hmm. Um, we're murdering things constantly, and we reserve the actual murdering for a, the the murdering cast, mm-hmm. which differs from place to place. Right there are. I was talking about this the other day. The, the untouchables, the um, the the tanning and butchering class in Japan, in sort of feudal Japan, the cago in right uh, in southern France and Spain. You know, they all do this sort of they do these jobs that no one else wants to do. Right, and they themselves are considered a a, a different class or caste because of the work that they do. Or right. and, vi- and vice versa. Right. But it is, <clears throat> we do that because, I mean, those people are proxies for this kind of um, work we don't want to confront. But devil, boy. Devil, 20, 2010, I'll say, 2011. Devil, where devil. the people are trapped in the elevator. One of them's a devil. They don't know who. Ooh, that seems like an interesting But movie. they're trapped. Uh. I mean, there are people all the time who starve rather than become cannibals. But there are people who survive because they were cannibals. I read a thing the other day that said that during the Ukrainian um, starvation genocide, Mm. the the famines, the Stalinist famines in Ukraine – one of the reporters at the time said, all of the good people died first. <laughs> because if you were inclined to share your food with someone else who was hungrier than you were, you mm-hmm. died first. Mm. If you weren't willing to steal, you died first. Mm-hmm. If you weren't capable of being a cannibal, you died first. And that's a terrible uh, that's a terrible little epigram. All the good die first. It's a Billy Joel song too, which makes it even worse. The, the good die young. You mean? Yeah. Only the good he die young. Di- he means it differently, but he doesn't <laughs> mean like not... those unwilling to steal or cannibalize die young. <laughs> but really, it's you know the, it's the awful it's the awful daydream, and maybe the reason all these. Shows are so popular with people, true crime shows, um, that you do imagine you do imagine yourself in that situation and on both sides. I think, um, what if I were killed this way, and what if I were driven to kill this way? Right. All by way of saying we're not strangers to it, but those are the popular shows, and the less and less uh, shows as they get closer and closer to two middle-aged guys philosophizing freelance and freehand, those are less popular than murder shows. 
I guess Mark Marin is just kind of, but I mean, he's interviewing rather than just rather than freelancing mm-hmm. interviewing being a whole separate deal. Panic room with Jodie Foster. It's a small room locked right? in a room. I hope someone is counting these. I think you're at six now, right? Primer, which is a sci-fi film about time travel where they enclose themselves into a small box to travel through time. All right. That's Does that seven. count? But you can't just call every movie where you go into some hyperbaric chamber to survive long distance space travel. Cause it's no, that's every sci-fi movie. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, what is the point of this show to you? If there is one, or are you much more in the moment you conceived of this show? Because you did, you pitched it and you perform it. Are you like completely rooted in the, in the, um, the act of it? Is it, is it enough that it is, or do you have a goal for it? Or if not a goal, do you imagine a result from it? No, I, I just sort of show up and look forward to talking to you, uh, about whatever, whatever comes up. And obviously I, I hope that people will support the show so that we can make a living. So in that sense, like my goal is, yeah, like I want to make money, but if I woke, if I woke up tomorrow and I had, you know, $20 million in a bank account that was just mine, I don't feel like I would cancel the show. I think I would. If anything, I would put more energy and time in, into, you know, making the show better because I wouldn't have to worry about anything else. I would just do just this show. Hmm. I've also thought about if I had a windfall, whether would you, I would, would keep you keep doing shows, doing shows. And I think I absolutely would. I cannot imagine that if I suddenly were able to leave a lead a life of leisure, mm-hmm. that I wouldn't still find even, a even lot of more value. leisurely than many people would consider that you already have a life of leisure. <laughs> some people might, I'm not saying I would say that I'm saying some people might say that, but I'm just picturing myself sitting in a, in my room in a hotel in San Tropez, mm-hmm. uh, in Villefranche. <laughs> yeah. And having the, you know, having the um, the bellhop set up my podcasting rig uh-huh. in some corner of my my expensive suite. Oh, I looked it so up. It was just just called Room. That's the name of the woman with a kid in the room. It's right. called Room. It's a good. That's a good name for it. Room. Uh, I think I would still. I think I would wake up in the morning and I would say, "Draw my bath." And bring me my podcasting rig, right? So that I can talk to this dingling in Austin, Texas, that <laughs> I've been doing a show with for a long time. <laughs> what do you expect to get out of the show? And they um, would say, "Monsieur, what are you talking about <laughs> with your friends?" And I will say, "Nothing, Nothing, really." What do you want to get out of the show? What is what is your goal? Oh well, see, I don't think that I have a goal, but I definitely do anticipate a result. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that, maybe I have a, maybe there is a result that I have as a goal, which is, I don't know, a, a greater, 
a greater shared understanding, like having, having facilitated a small pocket of people who have just, you know, who have just slightly added to their vocabulary of techniques and, um, and capabilities, capacities, and the long, the end goal of that is something that is, you know, that is unknowable. That hopefully it will it will reverberate long past our lifespans. Some little contribution like that, some drip, 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 drip. That because I guess I'm I. I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I believe I've never really thought about it this way, mm-hmm. but you know, it is very possible to be cynical and to be crusty and still believe that mankind is basically good and, and still believe that, that we are all effectively murderers but that the part of us that desires not to murder and would go as far as inventing patent leather shoes to distract us from murder (laughs) is a sign that we are good and that that's the side of us that intrigues me more. There's nothing that's intriguing to me about the parts of us that are murderers, which is why those true crime shows just, they bounce off of me. Like, yeah, you're, you know what? There's a lot of ways to kill somebody. And, um, and catching the killer is a fun game of chase, I guess. But what, you know, I, but the, the vast majority of us who wake up every morning and suppress the voice that's going kill, kill, kill and go like, got to get these shoes tied, got to get out the door. That's way more compelling. It's way more fruitful, I guess, if you're going to look at if you're going to look at human nature, because I think a lot of people are like, I like to study human nature. Who are these killers? Like, Jesus. I'm everybody. With you. I'm, I'm with you. I don't like, I don't like true crime stuff at all. It doesn't interest me at a best case scenario. It would make me feel paranoid. The worst case scenario. I just don't like it, but Rightful, I don't, it, it should make you feel paranoid. Every single person, your neighbors, your own children, are prepared to gnaw on your finger bones if pushed. I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, your cat will eat your face. Yeah. There, that's an animal though. They don't have any, uh, higher reason centers. You know, people think people think John, that dogs are smiling to express happiness. Go on. Well, what they don't realize is animals, especially dogs don't smile in a, in a, in a way that says the way that like you might smile after you've had Dutch apple pie and an affogato and you might sit back and say, mm, yeah. And you get a little smile on your face. Dogs don't do that. I don't smile then, but go I, on. I've seen you. I've seen you do something with your face that I would call a smile. Yeah. It's just, it's rigor mortis. Well, <laughs> the point is dogs don't do this, but here's what happens is through selection 
and breeding, people will look at a dog and say, oh, look at, look at uh, my little dog there. Oh, he's, he's smiling. He's smiling smorky. at me. Little, and he's, little smorky. And, and the owner will say something to the dog that makes the dog wag its tail and because the dog is getting attention. It doesn't know why or what it did. And then after the second or third time, it says, wait a minute. I was doing that yawn. And after I yawned, I kind of did that thing with my face and I got all this praise. So I'm going to do that again. And then that dog, the smiling dog, gets bred with this other person who realized that their dog also smiles. And now you've got a new generation of dogs that's going to smile more just naturally. They're not feeling the emotion necessarily. They just look like they're smiling. It's like draw a picture of a cute little baby face and show it to my daughter. And she's oh, it's so cute. It's so cute. Because she's hardwired to like the face of a baby. So that we don't, and you're going along with your theory, so we don't kill the babies. Mm, don't kill babies. Be- because they make really loud noise in the middle of the night. Ugh, you want to kill if, them. if they weren't so cute, we might kill them. But uh, they're really cute. They're really cute to cute. us, too. And that's the thing is that we are wired to think that they're cute because they have big eyes for the head, big head for the body. That registers as cute. They look helpless, which is cute. You want to help them. You want to hold them. And all of a sudden, you're a parent. And you're like, what the hell did I, how did I get here? All right, because this thing looked cute. And so the defense against murder is being cute. And we're programmed biologically to think that. Cute and, people get murdered, though. Well, true. But it goes into the whole thing of like, you look at a squirrel and you think, oh, that squirrel is cute. It's cute because it looks like a baby because it has big eyes for its head, big head for its body. And we're programmed to think that that's cute. And that's You're one of we, these people that thinks a squirrel is a rat, a cute rat, aren't you? Well, it's not that different from a rat, but I don't think it's a rat. You know, no, the, I mean, I know that you look at a squirrel and recognize it as a squirrel and not a rat. Yeah, but that's as far as it goes. I see. I don't have feelings for squirrels. And, okay. you know, but the whole point is, like, there's no difference between a squirrel, a cow, and a cat, or a dog. They're all mammals, but we don't want to eat the ones that look cute. We don't want to kill the ones that look cute. You know, when you're driving down the road and you see that the raccoon has been run over, you're like, oh, poor little raccoon. Let's go get some burgers. You know, it. we differentiate that because we don't have to look at the thing that we're about to eat and think it's cute. When I went to South Korea, the dog restaurants, there were a lot of dog restaurants. And I remember I was walking um, with one of my, uh, my handlers. Have mm-hmm. I told you this story on the show? I don't want to repeat it, but I'll tell you again anyway. I was walking in South Korea. I think we were in Busan. And uh, there, was this, there was this guy walking a, walking a dog. And I said, oh, look at that little dog over there. And the, my handler kind of laughed and shook his head. He's like, no pet, eat. No pet, eat. This was a guy who had bought the dog to go and butcher and eat. It was yes. his food. And he was walking it. And, and apparently I came to find out that although there are people who at the time, this was many years ago, who might keep a dog as a pet. That was very unusual. And in fact, there was kind of like most dogs that you saw were for food. They were for eating. 
And there was also a certain, I don't know if it was like a certain breed of dog or whatever, but there was like an eaten dog. It had like an eaten dog and it was like white and it looked a certain way. And that was your eaten dog. Mm-hmm. And I remember I, I bet walked, they were all smilers. I bet all the eaten dogs they were all smilers. Were, they were all smilers. Yeah. And you would walk down the street and you know how you would see the sign out in front of a, in front of a building. You might walk by one and they might have a picture of uh, a chicken. Well, that's where you're going to go eat your chicken. They would have one of a dog. That's your dog restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we went now. I did not eat the dog, but I went with my handlers. They took me to a dog restaurant and they, they ate dog while we were there. I did not eat the dog. Um, and looking back, I mean, at the time I was mortified by the fact that there were these people eating dog, like they were eating dogs. Like you're not supposed to eat a dog. A dog is a pet. And then later I had this realization. I was like, how, how hypocritical of me that one animal, one non-human animal, uh, you know, is, is somehow blessed and another one is not and i kind of regretted not eating the dog but i never sure, eat not the dog. Dog. if you I don't should. eat the bar the bar eats you <laughs> that's right that's right i agree yep. that there is something in human nature that is or can be very uh primitive and barbaric and aggressive and um, there are people who would say, you know, that that if, if you're a believer in evolution, you would say that comes from how we evolved and from where we came and that that most things in nature are brutal and harsh. I just read an article this morning was talking about some, um, I don't know, is it a tiger or something in captivity that just ate its, it had two babies and then it ate the babies mm-hmm. and or maybe it was a jaguar. I don't know, but it was some big cat. And they said, well, like it was in Germany. And they're like, well, we're kind of disappointed that she ate the kittens, but that happens. Could have been something about being in captivity. It could have been that there was something wrong with them. But basically there's something in the big cat's mind where if the kittens act weird, and I don't know what weird is to a cat mother, but if they act weird, she eats them. Because whatever that maternal instinct in her that says, this is a cute little kitten and it's mine and I need to take care of, of it. That turns off. Now it's no longer my cute little kitten. It's just a small furry thing. And I eat small furry things. So I'm eating those. Mm-hmm. And, and, and something deactivates that instinct in the cat that says, don't eat this kitten and changes to, Oh, there's some small mammal thing running around. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat that. And it's, it, you know, for human beings, we're protected from that because we think kids are cute. Most of us, most people think children are cute. Little babies are cute. And I think that's true for most animals. Animals can recognize babies and animals, not only human babies, but their own kind of babies and then other kind of babies. That's why there are all these stories where like the dog became like a foster parent for, you know, that's family of mice or something that its mom died. And like, how did it know? Well, it knew they were babies. It raised them, you know, because all things can recognize a baby. All mammals, at least seem to be able to recognize a baby. And so we're programmed to not, not hurt babies generally. But I don't know if I agree with you that everyone's naturally like a net, like, are you saying that human beings natural state is to murder that that and that that our society and culture around has 
has built walls to prevent us from doing that? That's really your belief? Well, you know, Thomas Hobbes. Mm-hmm. That's your that's your answer. No, no. Uh, hang on. Let me let me. <laughs> that's that's it. Drop the mic. You're done. Uh, I would say that there was a lot of um, that. This is something that's been argued for many hundreds of years. And Thomas Hobbes, Hobbes believes philo- that philosopher. life is na- nasty, brutish, and short. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And John Locke believed that man was basically good. This is the real shorthand of it. And it is, and these two guys argued at the time. Um, and people have argued ever since. Yeah. And I believe it is, it is possible and maybe necessary to believe both things. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. And man is basically good. And there is a state of all against all mm-hmm. that is that is effectively nature. Um, you know, animals and animals. Mm-hmm. Do not, um, do not think in terms of the greater good. Now they do work cooperatively if they're cooperative animals, um, and a lot of them just eat, just sit and eat plants. Not all of them eat birds, but in us there is the nature of a predator. And we work cooperatively to accomplish ends. I don't think that we work cooperatively because we uh, love it. I don't think that we are cooperative for the sheer enjoyment of it. We're cooperative because we recognize that five people can lift a heavier thing than one. Right. And we all see the, the, we all are capable of seeing the greater good, the, um, the bigger thing that we want built. And we're willing to put our effort into a pool in order to accomplish something that we cannot do alone. Right. But as soon as that is accomplished, that work party dissolves because our natural state is not to um, remain in communion with one another. It is always to, I mean, you, lots of people then with that same group of people go and work on something else because they've found that they have a good working relationship. Mm-hmm. But, just by the, just by that little term, like a working relationship, does not suggest that working well together is in the nature of relationships, even, and that if you work well with somebody, then you are in a relationship with them. You're in a working relationship with them. Like there isn't anything about us that is 
um, we're, we're certainly tribal, but we're not actually looking to be part of a single organism. We each are alone. And you mate and you cleave to one another, but you are always alone. And, and you know, your entire family can be murdered by a murderer and be featured on a murder show and you survive somehow and move on and go to an, and start another family maybe even as impossible as that might sound because we are each, we are born alone and we die alone. So I do think, yes, that we are each a beast, but that, that better nature is also in us and true. And it's why we seek God and it's why we write books. It's why we do podcasts to tease that out because there's nothing about the beast in us that is not already known by each of us personally. And what makes it interesting to people is is that and and why people are like oh you know the beast or you know why it's so intriguing is that that's the sex of life but it isn't intriguing we all know it intimately we can get there so fast mm-hmm. dan if the i mean that's what everybody's why all these preppers are so freaked out if the power goes down we're all we all revert 10 days 10 days of no food, and anyone listening to this show is going to be a freaking animal. No, I totally agree with you about that. But I don't, so, I, I wouldn't say that that is our natural state. I would say that's a po- <laughs> one possible state for us. Well, no, it is. It's a natural state, which is the result it, of it scarcity is a, of food and shelter. It is a state. It's not the, the, the goal state or the end state, it's a potential, potentiality. State. I'm saying it's the it is it is in us all. Every other state is you, are a you state saying that we which, would so do you believe, John, that we would we would start out that way? If we were not raised in society, if you're just all of a sudden you're on your own in 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 the world, living in a forest somewhere, fending for yourself, and you're used to killing stuff and eating it, right? You've never met another human being before. You've seen your own reflection in the tide pools but you've never met another human being before. And a human being shows up that there's like 50% chance you're just going to pull off and kill that person. Or, or, or do you think that that would be secondary that you might kill the person if you had to, because it sounds like what you're talking about 10 days with no food. I think there's a lot of people who would say, yeah, I I do what I have to do, but you're not like, 10 days with no food, you're not going to kill your spouse and children. You're going to try and kill someone else's spouse, not your own. I don't understand what you're getting at. Yes, I'm not saying that our natural state is to murder our spouse and children. I'm saying it is to murder someone else's spouse. Yes. (laughs) But why? This person that is arriving in your Edenic (laughs) world, if the person arrives in your Edenic world and they are the opposite sex and they take their clothes off, no, you will not try to kill them. But if they come so it's, and it's a state, and, not a natural state, like I would say it's a human, you know, it's what are you talking about? Okay. So I would say that it is, a, I'm not was, saying that humans are only murderers. 
that all we know how to do is murder. Okay. But that we are, if, if you are sitting in your Eden and you are eating a raw rabbit and looking up at the stars and wondering, um, when they're going to fall on mm-hmm. your head and mm-hmm. someone comes in and stands across the little stream from you, I think you would be very curious about them. But if they stepped across the stream and grabbed the raw rabbit out of your mouth that you'd spent two days trying to capture, you would lunge at their That's throat. Totally, I totally agree with you. No one's taking my rabbit. So that is, so like murder is not a, is not a, uh, is not, su- it's not an aberration is is what i mean that everything we've built to not murder is what's fascinating about us to to spend any time at all wondering like what was in the head of the murderer is um i i it's a kind of but the reason i think it's popular is that we want to tickle that that uh that animal and we try to put some kind of veneer on it uh to to have it appeal to our minds but it's really a it's really our loins that we're that we're stimulating mm-hmm. when we spend any time at all thinking about murder it's our it's our basest and i mean the thing is that that raw rabbit that you're eating you had to murder it like it's every morning you wake up and think like shit what am i gonna have to kill today and fortunately for us, all we have to do is kill a box of macaroni and cheese. But if we, if you were in any kind of natural state, and I'm talking about your little Edenic person that that has no English, but also you, Dan Benjamin, ten days after the after the grid goes down, like oh, ten ten minutes, the 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 willingness of everyone listening to this show to eat a raw rat. Uh huh. Like right now, I am betting no one, not a single person of the tens of thousands of people listening is willing to even consider eating a raw rat. And the, the, the very few days that like astonishingly few days, some of us have, some of us have done the wash, put it in the dryer and then left it in the dryer before putting it away. I would murder a person who did that left it in the dryer longer than it would take them to descend to a state where they would be willing to eat a raw rat. <laughs> oh, that, that stuff's been in the dryer for, you know, <laughs> eight days. Right. It's like, yeah, well, if your refrigerator stopped working and there was no store anymore, you'd be, and you couldn't, and you hadn't figured out how to make fire, you'd be eating raw rats. Thank you.